Before we get to today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Veracross. With a single record database and the strongest API in the industry, Veracross is the leading SIS provider for private and independent schools, and it's now available in Australia. Support us by supporting them, so visit veracross.com backslash edleaders to learn more. Now let's get to today's show. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. And where we believe with better leaders, we will make better schools. I'm your host, Luke Keller, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out every few weeks by the team at Ed Leaders. Matt, what should someone expect if they sign up? Uh, So I knew you were going to ask this question. Uh, So now I'm prepared. So I've decided to go with one word answers uh, with beginning with the, the same letter. So this morning, if uh, or it is this morning as we record, I've got three words for you of why you should uh, set, uh, listen and read um, news that are actually just read it. You don't listen to it. Um, it's inclusive, it's insightful, and it's inspired. How's that? Very good. I'll give you uh, 8.75 out of 10 today. Well done. You can sign up to the newsletter at edleaders.com.au where you can sign up. Now, on to today's guest, Nicole Dyson. Nicole is a globally recognized expert and practitioner in project-based learning and student entrepreneurship and is the founder of Future Anything, and I'm sure you've heard of her before, which delivers award-winning curriculum-aligned entrepreneurship programs for high school students. She's also the founder of Catapult Cards and YouthX, Australia's first purpose-built accelerator program for school-aged entrepreneurs. So without further ado, let's get to it. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, team. I'm just still sitting in the high cheese factor of those three I words you listed, Matt. Like it just, I like the alliteration. I'm a fan, but it was definitely, there was some cheese factor attached to those words. Excellent. My job is done. To be fair, I gave him five <laughs> out of 10 for his last effort, Nicole. So he, uh, he stepped up to the, to the plate a little bit. Now, excellent, Nicole, excellent. So we, improvement. Yeah. We, <laughs> actually, I've been on five out of 10 since we started. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes he looks at me like, oh, shit, now I've got to say something in the intro? Yes, Matt. <laughs> now, Nicole, we I think we've been trying to get you on the show for maybe close to two years. Yes, it is a long-awaited It's taken us a while, but welcome to the show. We yeah. love to start the journey. Uh, we love to start the podcast with your journey uh, in uh, your personal and professional journey. Uh, you know, uh, time in education. Cool. So, um, I, my background started, I took the scenic route to get to education. I think like I always encounter lots of educators that are kind of career educators and from five or six were playing teacher as little kids and then met this inspiring educator in high school that kind of confirmed that process. And then they launched themselves into this, um, dedicated career in education that felt like it started uh, when they were little. And I, I can't say that that was necessarily my experience. I was very dedicated at school. Um, you know, typical eldest child did exactly what I was told to do when I was told to do it. I uh, got all my homework done on time, was terrified of my parents as eldest children are. Um, but then when I finished school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And at the time I thought I wanted to save the animals and be a vet. Uh, So I jumped into like Bachelor of Science and quickly realized that I hated science. So that was a short-lived university experience there. Um, And so I did what most young people did pre-COVID when they were struggling with their identity. 
I actually just moved overseas and I lived in the UK and also in the US um, and coaching swimming over that time. So I coached the London Masters team in the UK and I was director of a swimming program in the US. And it was my experience working with young people in that context that made me question whether teaching might be something I'd like to do. I really loved seeing young people and athletes in this context do something they didn't think they could do. I just, there's this beautiful moment where a young person moves beyond their perceptions of their own potential. And I just, I love that moment of almost proving a young person wrong about what they're capable of and the possibility that's in front of them. So I wondered whether teaching might bring me that same level of joy, jumped into a teaching degree, stepped out into the classroom. Um, and it definitely wasn't Kumbaya and, and singing around a campfire. My first gig was in Caboolture, 40 minutes north of Brisbane in a community that has a multi-generational dependency on welfare and look if they were sitting in seats for 60 minutes that was a genuine win for a class but I quickly realized I think that all of my expectations of what teaching was supposed to be felt really crowded in curriculum and I was sort of haunted by the same question I think that a lot of educators are haunted by which is why are we doing this and I feel like as a beginning teacher I thought I needed bells and whistles and rap dances and cool tech and like super fun worksheets and a, you know, word search on a Friday in order to create engagement. And I think what I quickly realized is it's not about that. What young people crave more than anything else is purpose um, and an understanding of the context in which the learning is taking place and whether they like it or not, if they can see why the learning is important, then they'll tap in. And so that's kind of been, I think my journey is through both working in education and now stepping out is how do we support schools how do we support teachers how do we support young people to see that connection between the learning that's happening in the classroom and the possibility that exists outside the classroom so it's interesting sort of describing um you know that notion of feeling constrained and conditioned by the system that you're in to realizing there's actually other opportunities here there's a different way of looking at it so can you describe um sort of that that journey then to actually starting a business and founding, you know, a company, um, you know, because that's intriguing to us, you know, you've clearly got that passion for young people, you've kind of found your sort of spot, but actually the conditions are not right for you. So just sort of describe that to us. Oh, I, if I actually reflect back, it's look, everything in hindsight makes sense, right? So there were definitely some entrepreneurial ventures that I had a crack at through university and through the early years of my teaching career. So I definitely think I had that kind of, gosh, there's got to be a better way spirit about the way that I operated. But I can't say that I ever saw myself running a business that was never kind of on the cards for me. I think for me, it came to a head. I'd, I'd started piloting or I guess, yeah, piloting the use of social entrepreneurship as a vehicle for young people to unlock some of the capabilities and conversations that I thought were, were really important. Um, I felt like a lot of the time young people are judged by how well they can regurgitate the content back in the right order. And I felt like social entrepreneurship provided a vehicle for young people to do something with the problems they were exploring rather than just kind of tell me about how terrible the world was give them the space and the time and the capacity and the support to feel empowered and have a sense of agency over the complex challenges um, that were affecting them and their lives and the people of, that they cared about. And so, you know, after sort of piloting this with like 100 students in one school and then kind of testing the model with 300 students in three schools and I'm, I'm very big on telling educators, like, you have to be a data nerd when it comes to testing this stuff out. You have to be hungry 
for metrics that move beyond like numbers. You know, it's not enough as a provider to say we work with five and a half thousand young people and blah, blah, blah. Like that looks pretty and shiny on the outside, but the critical conversation needs to be for the work that you're doing, how are the young people or the educators different or better? Like how have you affected them in positive ways? How have you moved the needle? And so in those early tests around using sort of project-based learning and entrepreneurship and design thinking and kind of, you know, I'd say our work is kind of the intersection of that space. I was really hungry to look at what the data was, like were young people more engaged, did attendance increase, um, did behaviour referrals decrease, uh, did they, what was their self-assessment of their engagement in that process, did what, what happened academically um, through that journey. And so as I kept getting deeper and deeper in this search, I realised that the work that I was leading was having really strong positive effects on young people. And at the time I was working in a really supportive school with the most wonderful principal. I had a beautiful community. I had like a, a role that I basically got to write the role description for myself. I had a, a, a principal who was, you know, gave me explicit permission to experiment. And I think, you know, you can't underestimate how important it is for leaders to give explicit permission. Like, yes, do the thing. And yes, I don't care if you screw it up. Like that is, gosh, I can't un- understate how critical that is for innovation and growth in the system. And I had everything that I needed, but there was just this little nagging voice in the back of my head that kept saying, this is great and you're doing great work in one school, but could you do great work in many schools? What would it look like if this was at scale? Is it possible to scale this? What's the potential of this? Um, and so, you know, one mantra that I have is like, what's the worst that can happen? And so I played that scenario out in this case. What was the worst that could happen? Well, I could have a crack at starting a business and schools might not want to pay for what I want to offer them. And I'll just, you know, put my tail between my legs and wander back to a principal that I have a good relationship with and step back into a leadership role in schools. And so when I played the whole scenario out, there kind of wasn't, there wasn't a worst thing that could happen. The only time I've asked that question where it's gone wrong is when I went skydiving and the genuine play out of what's the worst that could happen <laughs> as I was in the plane was that, that was problematic. But every other time I've asked that question, it's it's normally been some sort of deep-seated fear around humiliation or the perceptions of, of failure that have almost been blockers or barriers to going down that rabbit hole. And so when I played this scenario out, I realised, well, what have I got to lose? So I spent the next couple of years piloting the programs and kind of really building the data and the story around whether this could work and then had a crack at selling it in schools. And my whole idea was from the beginning, I didn't want to be an, an, a not-for-profit. Not I didn't want to rely on grants and government funding. I, If schools didn't want to pay for what I had to offer, then I knew that the product wasn't good enough because I know schools have budget to pay for good stuff that does good work for young people and for teachers. So if I wasn't the good stuff that they were willing to pay for, then, you know, then the product wasn't good enough. Um, so it was all just an experiment in what's the worst that can happen. I'm using that today. There's the first one, Luke. What's the worst <laughs> thing that can happen? Nailing it today uh, in my workplace. Um, <laughs> I guess you, you talked a lot there about the data that you were collecting. Uh, I guess I'm interested in zeroing in a little bit on that data and, did the data show you things that you didn't expect or was it your hunch all along that the data would show you those things? Um, and did it surprise 
anyone around you or have you come across people who don't believe your data, you know, throughout throughout your journey, you know, from the early days, you know, to now? Oh, yes to all of those questions. Uh, yeah, look, I, I definitely had a hunch and I think my hunch was confirmed in the data. But yes, the data also showed me stuff that I didn't expect. And if you're doing data right, you should get unexpected things out of the data because if you're doing it to confirm what you already know, well, what's the purpose of collecting the information in the first place? So my hunch was that young people would be more engaged in uh, a curriculum experience that enabled them to bring who they were to the journey at where it was open-ended, whether there, where there was a problem-solving ability and, and where the, they could, they had voice and choice over what that looked like. That was, that was the, and look, there's research to back up that that's the case, right? But that was the hunch that I was testing. What I didn't anticipate, and that, that turned out to be true, students who sort of sat at that B, C level uh, were more engaged and as a result academically um, performed better under this because, and when I asked them what was the best thing about the unit, they said there was no exemplar. They, for the first time, they felt like whenever they see an exemplar in the first week of school where the teacher like, you know, uh, look, this is a whole other topic, but, you know, that first lesson when you've got this like room full, like a captive audience that are desperate to to know who you are as an educator and what their journey is going to be like, we bore them with task sheets and kind of lull them into this depressing state of it's all the same. So, uh, you know, the young people who are used to seeing exemplars and, and disengaging because they know that they can't achieve that when there was no one way to do it actually felt a sense of freedom and opportunity in the experience, which was reflected in uh, better performance academically, better attendance, lower behaviour referrals for students who were a little bit sticky or tricky in that area. What I didn't anticipate was that the high achievers, the students who were, you know, your NAPLAN top performers, like your golden children for your standardised testing that your schools love, they dropped academically. And when I asked them what was the hardest part of the unit, they said there was no exemplar because they had trained themselves to be really good at looking at the model and duplicating the model, like in putting the right information in the right order and performing really strongly. And this experience of there not being one way to do it or the best way to do it is actually to evolve and iterate the idea, that really challenged them because their relationship to feedback was really negative and their connection with feedback was failure. And so, you know, young people who were getting lots of like, could you try this or could you try that? And we're used to getting feedback. Your C-level students, your B-level students just like thrived with that opportunity to constantly pivot and iterate their idea. But young people who were typically high performers, who are trained that when they get their um, draft back, there's very little markup on it because they've nailed 95% of it. And to be honest, as the English teacher, if I know that a young person is hitting an A, I'm going to spend way more time on the student who's hitting a D. Um, and so there is little markup on the high performers. What I reflected on is that I hadn't provided any space for young people in that category to practice getting feedback and using it and being hungry for feedback and seeing feedback as an opportunity. So in a project-based learning space or in, in, in an entrepreneurial space where Pivoting and iterating is key. Getting feedback and learning is key. Holding your problem tightly but your solution very lightly is key. They just weren't set up for success in that space because they had been trained for however many years they'd been in school to take the content, 
and then regurgitate it back in the right order and that was how you nailed school. So that was a surprise to me and it is still a surprise because I have lots of schools that approach us as an organisation and they want to do this work but the group that they want to pilot it with or target it with is their high achievers because they feel like this is an extension activity and it is but it also you miss an opportunity to serve your other learners when we bucket these kinds of opportunities into our high performers or our academic achievers or our streamed classes. What's interesting there is is that idea, um, you know, that that some of these kids just know how to play the game, you know, and the game is tell the teacher what they want to know, tell the teacher how it's done, um, you know, and just that notion we're not serving that top 20% well, um, Actually, um, we're having that discussion at work this week with a whole bunch of leaders, you know, and you're absolutely right. We send all that focus, you know, in that DC sort of area and we forget the top 20% and actually meeting the, the needs that they truly have. Um, so I wonder how you've then taken that that, that finding um, to challenge leaders. Um, have there been any, you know, opportunities for you to really challenge um, that notion? Yeah, I think when we started, I... Um like it was social entrepreneurship that was the vehicle. At the time, nobody else was was using entrepreneurship as a vehicle in curriculum. There were lots of like clubs and bolt-on stuff, but actually embedding entrepreneurship as an accessible unit of work within a mainstream piece of curriculum just wasn't happening at all. And I would still argue that it is to varying degrees of success. I think it sits in business and entrepreneurship and doesn't kind of permeate your, your mainstream subjects like your humanities and your house and your maths and your science and all the other places and English, for example, where it should play. Um, so that, that definitely the ability to, I guess, bring this to mainstream was kind of the intention. What I've realized probably in the last 18 months is that it, it's actually not about entrepreneurship at all. And so we've got this tagline on our website that's about, you know, building youth entrepreneurship and I've, I have this real visceral reaction to that language now um, and we're in the process of trying to like rebrand everything but my gosh if you try to actually like pin down what it is that you do in a couple of words and not use the word entrepreneurship when everyone understands it it's really hard so I'm going to do my best to explain it. I think in talking to principals the conversation and, and school leaders and teachers the conversation that I'm trying to have with them is what do you want for your young people when they leave you at the end of school, not from what do you want for them? Who do you want them to be? How do you want them to be able to show up at the end of 13 years of schooling? And when I ask that question, if you honestly reflect on it, you know, we want things like young people who know who they are. You know, what do we want for them? Well, we want them to see possibility in front of them. We want them to have resilience and grit. Like we want them to have determination and be willing to work hard. And, you know, all of these like soft skills or 21st century skills or, you know, the four C's or the six C's that typically sit outside the curriculum performance. And so when I think about, you know, how we're training young people at the moment, which is to kind of just sit for 60 minutes and take it, and then regurgitate the content back in the right order. Who are they when they leave us? Because nobody will employ that person. I don't want to hire somebody who sits in front of me waiting to be told what to do next. Like that's one of my most frustrating parts of now, you know, managing people and leading people. And so how are we building the critical capabilities that young people need to not only navigate life after school but thrive and be able to show up? 
And so I think this comes back to, for us, it's like, how do we build enterprising young people? Not entrepreneurial, but enterprising. And the definition that I love is marked by an independent, energetic spirit and a readiness to act. And so if you've got a generation of young people that are marked by an independent, energetic spirit and a readiness to act, it doesn't matter which industry they're moving into. It doesn't matter what occupation. It doesn't matter if they want to be doctors or nurses or cleaners or, I don't know, some sort of rad coder. Like it doesn't matter what they want to do. At the end of the day, you know, they're going to walk into a space and they're going to have like some energy about who they are. And if they see a problem in front of them, they're going to have the capacity, the agency, the willingness to solve complex problems in creative ways collaboratively. And I think if we can get to that, we're going to be okay. Um, so the conversation that I have with schools is at the moment, I understand and I, I you know, it's important. The, the question on everyone's lips as they're listening to this is, but what about ATAR? And I get it. Like we have this system at the back end that we then seem to hold up as the defining barrier to doing good work. But I, I just don't think that we can avoid this conversation any longer because, yes, the assessment instrument at the end might be defined for us, but how we show up in the classroom as educators and the way that we facilitate learning for our young people, like that's on us when we walk into the classroom. And so, yes, maybe there's an exam at the end, but do you have to be a content disseminator in the way that you prepare young people for that assessment? Or can you provide opportunities for young people to work collaboratively and creatively in the classroom to get to the same end? Lots to unpack there. And I'm sure Matt's got 48 questions. (laughs) Uh, So I'll let him collect his thoughts. You know, I'm interested in the notion that, you know, in addition to ATAR, you also have the certificates of education, which have often have quite a lot of constraints around them as well. And um, when it comes to that regurgitation, you then move from from year 12 and, you know, let's say uh, whatever the number is, but 30, 40, 50% of students then go on to some form of further education where, again, m- the majority of the time they're being expected to regurgitate information or paraphrase information and, and other people's works into their own words. I'm, I'm interested in whether the conversations, those conversations that you're having with principals and leaders in a schooling context, whether they're all received the same way in a positive manner or whether some challenge you and go, no, don't agree. And also then as a secondary question to that, whether at a systemic level, you know, in either, you know, state government departments or at university level, whether you hear the same comments back. It's, yeah, it's always the second question when I lead a conversation around where is education going, the first question is normally like really fluffy and friendly and supportive. And then the second question from the back right-hand corner is always something like, but we can't do that. You know, the system stops us or this isn't possible or mm. um, it's never the first question. It's always the second question. And then the, the the response that defaults off the back of that is, well, that's all good and well for the middle school. Like in a secondary school setting, you can do that in grade 7 to 10, but you, you can't do that in senior, you know. And so the senior teachers roll back in their chair and say, well, this isn't for us, you know. This is for the, the junior school teachers or the primary school teachers. We don't, we don't have to listen to this. Um, but if I ask educators or a room full of educators, tell me what great teaching and learning looks like. If I walk into a classroom 
what would I see? What would I feel? What would I hear? Um, what would I be watching? Like what would be happening if, if I walked into a classroom and just great teaching and learning was happening? And when I ask that question of educators, whether they're senior or junior, whether they're secondary or primary, the responses are all the same. It's this, this you know, that young people who are engaged in their learning. You know, it might be a little bit noisy. A lot of people talk about it being a little bit messy. Um, maybe groups of, you know, groups of young people are working on slightly different things around the room and maybe young people are getting feisty over the content, you know, like you've started a bit of a world war of something like in your classroom or, and I used to say that I knew I'd taught a great lesson when young people were arguing when they left the classroom about what we taught, you know, like that the content they were carrying the content with them. They couldn't stop talking about it or, you know, that feeling of the bell going and then students don't move because they're so in the moment that they haven't noticed that they've got this free pass to lunch. And so when I ask educators what does great teaching and learning look like, I would say 99.9% of educators describe this place where it's like messy and real and it's engaging and it's collaborative and it's creative and it's open-ended. And then... For some reason, we stop the conversation there when we then talk about what we want for our young people in the senior school. And that's where I think we're failing because we're refusing to continue that conversation into, well, how do we make that happen for our young people? If we know as practitioners of learning, as experienced educators with collectively thousands of years of experience, we know that this is great teaching and learning then why do we keep blaming ATAR or blaming the certificate or blaming these external assessments on why we're not doing the right thing by our young people in the classroom? When you walk into that room, you're the captain of that space. Do the thing you know is right. Do what's right, my goodness. Um, Nicole, that one of the things I'm sort of thinking and reflecting on um, is something that I often say, and it's it's probably more rhetoric than than anything, is that I actually truly believe that teachers are creative by nature. They're innovative by nature, but they've forgotten it because they've been conditioned by the system and they will go to the unnumbered ATAR and it's too hard, et cetera. Does that, does that resonate with you, um, you know, as a belief? I know it's, 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 a, it's a bit rhetoric, but um, I just can't help think that that exists and it's about how we bridge the gap. Yeah, 100%. So in some of the work that we're doing at the moment, we're benchmarking capabilities and we do this with teachers and students. So we have six critical skills that we're focusing on building that I believe combine to create agency. Like when you have the collision of these capabilities, you have a young person with agency and engagement. Um, and so the capabilities that we're looking at, a lot of them will be familiar. They'll just be relabeled like in your school context, but it's like creativity and innovation, critical thinking, problem solving, communication, adaptive mindset, which comes back to the research around adaptability quotient. Um, and so young people bouncing back from failure, using feedback um, as fuel, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I always forget one, project management. So we don't call it collaboration. We call it project management because that's kind of the skill that young people need to navigate. So when we run professional learning with like schools, uh, we benchmark our teachers on how confident they are in teaching those capabilities and underneath each of those capabilities we've got like five skills that sit underneath them so in other words in order to be a project manager manager a good project manager can you do these five things and so then we ask educators how confident are you in your ability to teach these things now it doesn't matter which state or system i'm working in it doesn't matter whether it's primary or secondary capability that educators have the lowest confidence in is creativity and innovation across the board, hands down, and by like 20%. Like I'm not talking about like small margins. I'm talking about a significant drop in confidence to teach that capability. 
And this comes back to our relationship to creativity because we see it as the arts. And so if you're not musical or artistic, you then build in, you bed into your identity that you're not creative. And that's not true at all. But I 100% agree, Matt. I think when we've moved towards standardized assessment, we've actually moved towards standardized curriculum. And what we've done is we've kind of taken the secret sauce out of teaching because educators haven't had the space or time to infuse those learning journeys with those creative opportunities. And I think now they lack the confidence to build that kind of learning because they haven't had the permission and the space and time. And so I would say that the biggest barrier or blocker that we have to this is I come in, you know, to, to a school and I, I lead like a, a day of professional learning and I get the teachers to think differently about curriculum and they might have this skeleton overview for this unit that they're really excited about, but then the school provides no support beyond that day for the teachers to really deepen that piece of curriculum and develop that piece of curriculum. And so then they default back to what they've taught before, which is whatever was on the G drive from the previous year. Um, and that's because we're time poor, right? It's not because we don't know, like you walk into the lesson and you have that moment of, oh, I remember this lesson sucked, but we didn't have the time to fix the blocker, the barrier, the challenge or, or infuse or change um, what we knew we needed to. So I think teachers know, like I, I think they have this beautiful capacity to design highly engaged learning experiences, but we've kind of like, they don't have any time or space, they don't have any support and they don't feel like they have the permission. They don't think they can. Um, and so all of these things like fuse to create what I see in the room, which is, but we can't. Um, you can, but maybe you don't have the space, the support and the skills right now to do it. If you love what we do here at Ed Leaders, then please support us by supporting our sponsors. And today's episode sponsor is Veracross. Is your school ready for the modern age? Well, we've got good news for you. Veracross, the leading CIS provider for private and independent schools, is now available in Australia. Trusted by hundreds of schools in more than 30 countries around the world, Veracross is the only 100% cloud-based single record database built exclusively for private and independent schools. It's one system for your entire school. Integrations with popular edtech solutions like Schoolbox, Pixevity, and Digistorm enable seamless workflows and easy-to-access information. Plus, their in-country data center improves network speed and privacy so you can rest easy knowing your school's data is secure and protected with Veracross. Make 2023 the your school moves to the cloud. To learn more about Veracross, visit veracross.com backslash edleaders. That's V-E-R-A-C-R-O-S-S dot com backslash edleaders. And it would mean the world to us if you or your school's director of IT check them out. Now back to today's show. I personally think there's a, a very nuanced difference between that notion of uh, creativity or being creative and being a creator. And I think, you know, like people can identify as, yeah, I'm not bad at creating or being a creator of X, Y, Z, but tell me, ask me if I'm creative and can teach creativity. And I think, no, that's the arts. Um, so I think that's a really interesting nuance there on just that little aspect. But I guess I'm interested in in your experience when you have described there around staff feeling time poor, you know, the journey that probably, you know, people 
that have been in the game for 20 years have seen that shift um, maybe from 20 years ago when they had more time to the current state of the world where they don't feel they've got that time. Um, and, I, you know, we all know there's, a, you know, a bunch of reasons why probably one of the, the biggest ones is the amount of time that we spend communicating via email with either parents directly or, you know, other staff. And so I'm wondering what you've seen out there in schools uh, of those people that do find the time to be cre creators or creative that they're doing to find the time um, that others could kind of learn from. Oh, this, look, this is a tricky, sticky question and I'm going to tentatively step into this conversation because, you know, I, I know even since I've stepped out of the classroom, the job is so much more complex than when I was there. So I think that's kind of the caveat to this conversation is I can uh, empathise with the realities of the work, but I'm also not in the classroom right now too. So I, I just, you know, I want to couch that conversation here. I always reflect back on, you know, and I'm going to use a primary school example, the primary school educator who's about to embark in a unit of work that's got to do with under the sea and spends an entire weekend decking out the classroom so that it is like the Little Mermaid style exploration of living under the sea. And that educator spends, you know, 30 hours over the course of like two weeks building out this classroom or, or whatever. And they don't ever resent that time because it feels like it's going to add value and bring joy to the learners. And it probably brings a lot of joy to the educator who's doing that at the same time. So even though that's above and beyond, it's like joyful above and beyond. And so I guess my question around the time issue is, we do have limited time, but how as leaders are we carving out space for joyful pursuits for educators, for collaborative space, for teachers to be creative, for um, how do we alleviate the load? Like where are schools like doing genuine audits on where their teachers' time is and, and working really deliberately to alleviate the, the pain points that can be alleviated? Like I think we've got to start with the data rather than complaining about having no time you know, where's the data to talk about specifically what we're spending time? I know it's emails, but is it inbound emails or is it internal emails? Like, let's get really granular. Is it me just archiving all staff emails that don't apply to me? Like, let's actually break this down and go specifically where is, is this time being spent that could be redirected to joyful pursuits? And I think that, you know, for a long time, education has put up this barrier or this blocker to say that we can't operate like industry and do things differently with flexibility. And I think that the end is nigh on that mantra as well. And there's lots of schools that are doing really interesting work around looking at four-day work weeks and having a day for professional learning uh, for their staff. And, and I think that we have to, as leaders, get a little bit braver with stretching the system that we think can't be stretched. And um, I always come back to one of Peter Hutton's catch cries which is like you, you have to know the rules better than anyone else that way you can bend and break them like if you don't know where the rules are like you can't bend and break them and he he just knew the legislation so well that he could find the pockets of opportunity to stretch um, what was possible from a leadership point of view I love that know the rules better than everyone else again using that one today <laughs> uh, to bend and break um I just want to go a little bit sort of deeper and perhaps into a little bit of a vulnerable space. You sort of talked about now you're out of the classroom um, and I can't help think 
that, you know, teachers are really good at being suspicious, um, you know, and it's a little bit of resentment uh, about people coming in and doing this sort of the, the shiny thing and go, you know, well, it's okay for them to do it because they're actually not with us um, doing the real work. Um, I'm, I have a hunch that potentially you've encountered that and I'm, I'm sort of curious how you've kind of navigated that. Yeah. Look, I constantly reflect on how, um, yeah, and, and being fully transparent, I, I do constantly find myself in this little hole where I go, gosh, how long is my teaching experience and my leading experience current? Like how, what's the expiry on that currency? Like it is something that I think about all the time. Um, and look, you know, on my Twitter, the top pin is like, you know, if you haven't been a teacher in a classroom, please don't tell me how to teach. And I, I do believe that. I, and so, yes, you know, there are lots of thought leaders who step into, um, get paid a lot of money to walk into leadership spaces, way more money than I do to tell educators how to do education. And, and they've, they've never taught in class. And I have the same criticism of the tertiary space when, potentially the lecturers or leaders within that sector also haven't spent time in the classroom. Like they've finished a degree and they're professional students and they've just made their way through honours and an MBA and a PhD and actually haven't done time in the classroom. Um, And I I think that's really important. I will say that one thing that, you know, maybe helps is like every week I'm in a classroom working with teachers or students. Like, and so it's, it's on the ground on Monday I was in, Emeralds working on curriculum design and, and we jumped into like a online class in order to get them to provide feedback on the curriculum that we're working with. Just a random year nine class that happened to be next door to where we were doing that curriculum design. So I think you, you do, you have to be super conscious of it and then really deliberate and how you hold that professional currency by spending time with young people and time with educators on the ground. Like, I think that's really important. And as I said, like, as soon as Luke, you asked that question, like my first thing to do is flag the fact that I'm not in the classroom right now, you know, like I, I'm in classrooms, but I'm not in a classroom. And so I think, you know, you've got to be able to flag that for educators too, and be authentic about where your experience and expertise lies and then default to the authentic experience of, of educators and school leaders that are on the ground at the moment. I think the thing is though, and we've had this conversation before, there's like 10% of schools that are doing like really interesting stuff and are pushing the boundaries on what's possible. And then there's 90% of schools that don't know that that's possible. (laughs) And so how do we get the message out to everybody so that they can see that you don't have to do it the way that you're doing it? Like there are really creative ways. And for me, particularly around curriculum, uh, curriculum should be accessible and it should be rigorous, um, but it can also be rigorous and creative. Um, it's also not a, a state of origin battle between like explicit teaching and direct instruction and project-based learning. Like it should be pedagogy for purpose, you know, like, you know, your learners, you know, your school context, use the right pedagogical tool for your learners in the right moment. And I think that's really important, but what's required for educators and school leaders to feel like they can do that is, you know, coming back to what we said before, it's that explicit permission. Like they need to know they can, like that's the critical element here you know and it's the blocker that I face all the time even though the leadership team has paid for me to come in and work with them there's this little voice in the back of their head that's like oh but I don't know if I can and then it's my role to go cool we'll leave it with me like I I get to support you in this gatekeeping like let me go to bat for you um and kind of 
help create the space that you need to teach the way you want to teach. Well, hopefully the other 90%, Nicole, are listening to the Ed Leaders podcast or tuning into your live oh, live learning or... After the inspiring, <laughs> inquisitive and like, <laughs> what is the third word? I, I don't know because I didn't write it down. <laughs> I think it was insightful. Was it insightful? Insightful, yes. Yeah. 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 Whatever, whatever that means. Cry. Everyone's on now. Yeah, everyone's yeah. on. Hopefully they're hopefully they're listening in. But I, I do think that it's kind of you know, the work that you do with the live learning, like this, you know, anyone who's doing a podcast, it's the the work of future schools. It's, you know, the stuff that Megan does yeah. with the Innovation Festival. It's, you know, like it's all of those, you know, little bits of, you know, the stuff that Luca Parry does. It's all of those little kind of people who are out there, you know, and together as as a group, I think, are uh, helping that 90%, uh, you know, understand what might be possible. I guess, um Something that I'm curious about is that notion of you've talked about the fact that when you're in the classroom, the kind of work you did there, you've talked about last week or this week, you're in Emerald. I imagine that no two days are the same for you now. And that's quite different to, you know, the classroom experience. I'm wondering if you could share, you know, with the listeners, you know, what last week looked like for you, you know, to give them a sense of where you are, what you were doing, the variation in both location and content. Um, to give a better understanding of a, a week in the life of Nicole Dyson? Gosh, I actually have to open up my calendar because cognitively I only hold what I have to do now in my head. <laughs> so I'm going to look at my calendar while I, um, while I answer that question. What was I doing last week? So at the moment in, in Queensland, Queensland Social Enterprise Council is celebrating 10 years and they were the first uh, social enterprise council in Australia. So there's been a couple of events in the last week where I've been connecting with the social enterprise community in Queensland. I'm super pumped because tonight there's like a 10th anniversary dinner that's happening, but two of my entrepreneurs who are social entrepreneurs out of my programs are speaking tonight as a part of this 10th anniversary dinner. And so I get to, what's cool is I, um, ush, I get to usher in or it feels like I get to kind of usher in the next generation of social change maker into like an established organization. So that kind of bridging the gap between education and industry, how do we connect those two things together forms like a, a part of the work that I do. I'm doing some work with Morton Bay region in Queensland at the moment. They've got their Mayor's Telstra Innovation Awards. So I've been running a bunch of workshops for their top 30 teams. And so I've been mentoring these young entrepreneurs with their ideas around getting them ready um, and prototyping their ideas and testing their ideas and validating their ideas. So that's been super fun. I'm deep in a project with Matthew Flinders Anglican College on the Sunshine Coast at the moment. Uh, their primary school has this embedded design thinking approach that's from grade six all the way down to prep. And so over the course of the last um, couple of months, I've been working with every single teaching team from year six all the way down to prep to look at the way that they are embedding design thinking in amongst their HASS and science curriculum and then mapping that curriculum from prep to year six. So I've got really comfortable and, and also looking ahead to version nine. So I've got really comfortable with um, the year two achievement standards. Uh, they're bringing back celestial bodies uh, into year two, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, getting deep into Australian curriculum. And then also that's been a really amazing project because for a school to carve out the time to really look at how that works from prep all the way up to grade six, 
vortexing that curriculum up. Um, that's been a really fun project. I mentioned I was in Emerald um, working with their teams, uh, which was a lot of fun around doing some project-based learning design. That's And then just jumping, like obviously working with our Activate schools and connecting with different uh, schools that we're currently working with. Whilst I've been here, our team has also been in South Australia working with a primary school to deliver a five-day program. And so they've had um, 150 students for the week designing innovative solutions in their communities um, at a primary level, which has been pretty cool. So it's super varied, like lots of work with I would say my work sits very much now in that whole school and teach professional learning and whole school shifts. Um, that seems to sit in my portfolio. And then the industry connections between education uh, and industry. And then obviously uh, we've got the team doing lots of work with our Activate programs and running student workshops and stuff on the ground. But yes, like I, I do need to look at my calendar and you know, we in our house, if it's not in the calendar, it doesn't happen. Like it's scheduled to the hilt. Like if it's not there, we're not going out for dinner. Like, I don't know it exists. <laughs> That's what not I sure say. what you were doing last it, week, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't describe what I was doing last week, but I can tell you one thing, uh, that my bandwidth isn't infinite like I, I feel like Nicole Dyson's uh, bandwidth is. Uh, but I'm sure, Nicole, there, there, there are limits to, to bandwidth and you can't be everywhere doing everything to, for everyone. So give us a, give us a sense of the team uh, that you sort of, built around you because um, I imagine, you know, that, that values alignment, that, 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 that shared belief um, has to be pretty strong mm-hmm. to do the kind of work you're doing to nudge the system. Give us a sense of the people around you. I think, you know, one of the most terrifying things is transitioning from it just being you to also bringing other people on because then like you're responsible for other people's livelihood, um, which is like huge, like it's a huge responsibility. And then also trying to find like, what do you actually need? Because when you're in that funny little scale up to startup place, like everyone's kind of a jack of all trades. And so as you're growing, trying to find the right people with the right skill set. And I kind of, I try to use this phrase with the team, like I want this to be the best job you've ever had. Like I do, like I want you to wake up in the morning and be excited to, to do the work and to feel like it's fulfilling and it gives you the rest and the rejuvenation that you need, but that professionally you feel a little bit stretched and uncomfortable, but also really fulfilled at the same time. And so we have lots of conversations around, well, what's the work that you love and how do we get you doing more of that work? And also understanding that there's going to be elements of the role that are challenging and maybe a little bit spinach and broccoli rather than like Nutella um, as a part of the role too. But I've got a director of operations, Jess, who's been with me for three years and she's Melbourne-based and just is like a logistics weapon and is so good at bringing together kind of everything into one place. Also really great at saying no to me, which I need. Like I need people that are actually like, that's not going to happen and we don't have the bandwidth for that and can we rethink that at this point? And so she's that really critical voice of um, stability, I think, within the organisation, which is really valuable. We've just brought on Jen Buchanan at the beginning of this year who was at Future Schools and so she's obviously a really dynamic educator who's got a strong background in international education and also facilitation and she's heading up um, our student programs and our student engagement and school engagement stuff. So she was in South Australia with Jen, one of our facilitators, like leading that program with the primary schools. I think she's off to Kerwin State High School in FNQ next week to work with some schools up there. So she's really getting on the ground and working with our schools and our young people um, around our programming. 
we've got Kate who's based on the Gold Coast who comes from a sort of a head of department background in business um, and enterprise and senior business who is leading our Activate program at the moment. This year we've got I think 63 schools involved and five and a half thousand young people. So she's a total curriculum nerd, loves achievement standards and curriculum alignment, is like really details oriented and has been coaching and supporting all of our teaching teams, the 207 educators we have running that program around the country, supporting them to implement that program um, on the ground. And then we have a couple of like just amazing facilitators that jump in and support our workshops on the ground too. So it's a really light, lean team at the moment doing lots of work. And so we'll be growing again in the next six months and um, bringing somebody else on at that point in time. But, yeah, everybody's got like a really distinct skill set, I think, um, which kind of hopefully enables us to shape roles around their preferred ways of working. But it's a remote team, which is complex. Everybody's kind of all over the place, which brings about its own complexities. Um, We work off a four-day work week. So the team kind of some of the team distribute their hours across five days. Some of the team work the four days with the fifth off. So, um yeah, lots of little, you know, it's it's an interesting time in in the world to be running a business with the conversations around, well, what does work-life balance actually look like and how do you set up an organisation that considers all of that from the very foundations? Like how do you build vision and mission from the beginning? Like when you walk into a school where this was all kind of written in a strap plan before you arrived, you're just kind of calibrating off the base. Um, but when you're starting from scratch, like you've kind of got to ask the big questions about, well, what's actually important and how do we do things here? And then you have to build the systems and processes around that support that at scale. I feel a sense that a four-day work week doesn't exist for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can preach that, but what, what is it really like? <laughs> and I also yeah. think, Matt, that you know what? <laughs> we need a logistics weapon. That's what yeah. we need in our we life, need a, a logistics weapon. weapon. A weapon. <laughs> yeah. You can't have Jess, but oh, yes, you do need a logistics weapon. <laughs> you share her on her fifth day. No, she's not for loan. <laughs> no, not for loan. Um, yeah, do you know what? Balance is one thing that I definitely, oh, look, I think I definitely struggle with. The work is so good. And I know that sounds like a cop out, but it's really hard to stop, I think, when the work is so good. So I have some strategies that I have put in place. I've actually, I work with a coach who, basically forces me to put some of these strategies in place if I'm being honest but I've actually gone through the calendar and blocked out a bunch of days for the rest of the year and so it's not a four-day work week but it's about three Fridays in a term that I've actually blocked out as offline and so just trying to conserve a little bit of time in the calendar um, in order to create some space and we use a project management tool called Sensama internally. Um, and it's, I was looking for the right project management tool for a long time. And my team, if they listen back to this, will be wetting themselves laughing that I'm talking about Sensama again because it's almost like I'm getting paid to talk about it and I'm not, but I just love it so much. And it's like the perfect integration of like Trello and your calendar. And so it enables me to actually schedule work or the amount of work in for a week. And I have oversight on how many hours of work I've got and how many meetings I'm doing. And so you drop all your meetings in first and then you can actually like set tasks around that. And why this has been really useful for me is I used to work off a paper and a pen and I'd have a list of things to do. 
but I would never have quantified how long each of those tasks took. And so I never got to the end of the list because in actual fact, if I had four hours of meetings booked, realistically, I know now that if I schedule more than six hours of content in a day, I don't get it done because there's always stuff that comes in over the top. So if I allocate six hours of work, I get through my six hours of work. But if you've got four hours of meetings in a day, then really all you can do is schedule two hours of work around that if you want to get it done. And so using this tool to actually foreshadow bandwidth has been really effective for us. And it means that when I you know, say to the team, hey, I really need this done, they can actually open up their Sansama and go, that's cool. Well, that's a two-hour task. That would mean that I'd need to move this thing to next week. Are you happy with me pushing back that priority in order to make way for this priority? Because I actually have a fully scheduled week. And so for me, to be able to have oversight on what, what, what my week looks like and also when I'm making commitments to schools, like I can get back to you at the end of next week because I know I don't have bandwidth until the end of next week but also empowering the team to be able to push back against me or other deadlines that come in by saying, actually, I have a fully scheduled week. Um, what priority do you want me to push back? Creates like some really strong conversations around boundaries and time. You mentioned something there that I want to dive into a little bit. You mentioned that you have a coach. I'm always interested in when people have a coach that they're working with. And I'm, and I'm interested in whether you can share a little bit about how long you've been working with a coach, how that came to be how you find that kind of relationship and how that extends you personally? Yeah, so I've worked with my coach for coming on six years, so a really long time. And to be honest, I actually started working with her when I had just a bit of a personal crisis. Like that was when I felt like I needed coaching. But her skill set sits across both corporate and maybe that personal coaching space. And so over the last couple of years, that relationship has kind of... um, supported whichever area of my life is in most need at that particular point because it really is like a juggle between the work and the life and they both work together. So um, it's kind of been a bit of both of those things. We normally catch up every three to four weeks and it might be sort of a two-hour session and a lot of it will be kind of where were things before and what are, you know, what are we looking towards next and kind of unraveling any sort of complexities that might have arisen at that time. I think for me, coaching is like kind of the mirror to reflect back what's actually happening. Like that's how I would describe that relationship. It's a really open, safe space um, to shine the mirror back and, and, and ask actually what's happening here and then have the allocated space and time to really dig into that and understand it and then plan ahead. For me, it's also about accountability. So, you know, the stuff that we talk about that I need to do, there's somebody who's going to hold me accountable to that in three weeks' time. Like, did you do the thing that you said you were going to do? So that difficult conversation you said you were going to have, did you have that difficult conversation? And so I know that not only is it the mirror back to me, but it's also the accountability on the other side. I'm just thinking about sort of that coaching point for you. It just sounds like so important, you know, particularly as you try and integrate your personal and your professional life. Um, And I can't help think that there's a lot of leaders out there that could really do with a coach, um, but perhaps they're reluctant to jump in. Um, You know, I just, I just wonder, you know, um, you know, you talked about accountability and you talked about that mirror and, you know, that, that need to, to navigate. I wonder what, what, you know, other benefits you could see if leaders were to, to, to get a coach and how that, that would help them do their work better. 
Yeah, I, look, I, I definitely thought before I got a coach that I didn't need one too. I think it's really easy when you're perhaps a high high performer to be like, oh, I don't need this. Like, I'm, I'm good here. Like, everybody else needs a coach, but I don't need one. Um, but I genuinely think it's not about needing it. Maybe the question is, do you want to be better than you are now? Like, are there things that you're struggling with that you would like somebody to support you through? And I, I don't know that anybody's going to say no to that. Nobody's working at peak performance all the time. Or if they are, please email me because I would like to know you and how you do it. Um, and so I don't think you have to be broken to get a coach. You just have to want to be better than, than what you are now or maybe want more for yourself. And for me, it's not just about what I want for me. It's how I want to be able to show up to my team. Like, it's I want to be a better leader for my team. I want to be a better partner. To my partner, I want to be a better parent in my home. Like these are all things that I want to be better at. So it's not about being broken, but it is about being better. Look, I, I guess I want to transition to kind of as we kind of get to the end of the kind of hour that we've got together. Um, you know, I'm interested in whether if you went back five years in time, is future anything now what you thought it was going to become? And looking five years ahead, where do you think you're going to be in five years? No, there's no way I could have known that we would be here five years ago. Like I just, no, I genuinely thought I'd be back in schools. I thought this would be a fun little jaunt down business lane and then I'd be back working in schools, doing good work in a school. There's no way I thought I'd still be here. There's no way I thought we'd be working with the number of schools that we work with or working across the number of states. Like there's no way. There's no way. If I think five years ahead, that's really interesting because it's so easy to be in the work that you don't kind of look up to see where you're going. I would say that what I would love for us is our work to be more accessible to more schools and systems. At the moment, the work that we do is kind of, especially in that curriculum design space or even through our Activate program, is, is quite reliant on us as facilitators of that learning. And so I'd love to be more creative in the way that we use technology to increase the accessibility of this kind of support for schools and for systems and for educators and for young people. So that's kind of the direction. And I think where we're really digging into is this capability building for me. Like I think teachers are so great at teaching content and I think we genuinely don't know how to how to teach those capabilities right now. Like we really struggle to know, well, how do I build that into the classroom and we're seeing such beautiful work in schools when we focus in on this, like choose one capability, let's teach you how to teach that and I'm going to show you how to embed it into everything we're already doing and we're seeing just such magic um, happen in the classroom from a relational point of view between the teacher and the student by refocusing around some of those skills and then also in an agency and capability building um, kind of way. So I'd say that's kind of the pocket of work that I think we'll dive into more with a focus on how we increase the accessibility of what we do. It's exciting times. And, you know, Nicole, I've, I've seen you in action. Um, I just get really excited when we sort of talk and I see you in action. You know, I find you, uh, you're the, one of the most engaging, inspiring people I've seen uh, um, do their work. And so I want you to give a, a big pump up to our teachers and leaders. What's your last word of, of encouragement and, and inspiration uh, this morning? Gosh, no pressure, right? Um <laughs> I, I always think back to like when I was a beginning teacher, um, every classroom door was open to me, right? Like I got to walk in and out of every classroom and kind of learn from the best in the game by just being a casual observer. And I got to use like, well, I don't know yet, or I'm a beginning teacher or I'm, I'm on my crack. Like that language 
created the permission for me to constantly learn and relearn. And so there's probably two things that I would say to that. I would encourage all educators to go back to that beginning teacher who was hungry to know more and kind of be open to seeing the different ways that different educators do things. Like as an English teacher, I find when I watch a maths classroom at play or a science classroom at play, like I learn so much from that and I feel really energised by watching other great educators do great work with great young people. And so I think if you're feeling a little bit low in energy, take some time to go and dive into a really different classroom to your own and see if you can pick up some new tools or some new energy from watching another master practitioner at their work in their place. Like I think that's really energising. And then the other thing that I would say is the flip on that is as as a teacher, they give you your degree and then kind of your door closes, right? Like they just kind of let you in the classroom and say, cool, you're on your own now, good luck. Um, and that can be a terrifying thing for a beginning teacher, but I also think it can be an empowering place for us to reflect on um, as teachers. There is no ACARA police. Like nobody's going to be standing at your window tapping there going, excuse me, that standard elaboration was not covered as explicitly as I intended for you to do. So. Like also take some confidence in the fact that you're the master of your classroom and, and, and take the time to know your learners and then calibrate your teaching for your learners and have confidence in your ability to do that. So the doors close, like do your thing. And then the other thing that I would say is open somebody else's door and just sit and immerse yourself in some learning as well and some watching. Excellent uh, suggestions there. And uh, I guess that brings us to my favourite segment, which is six in 60 seconds. Uh, one word or oh, idea. This is the bit that made me anxious. <laughs> Look, Nicole, those are the rules. One word or one idea. <laughs> hey, and then you know what? Nobody follows the rules. Uh, so you do what you want with the questions. <laughs> okay. One educational narrative that's been underrated or overrated in the past decade. I'm going to go back to that. What's the worst that can happen? Hold on to that. Uh, the favourite group you've ever seen come through Future Anything. <laughs> this is like when your parents, you're not supposed to have a favourite child and we all do. Like, That's why I asked you the question. A favorite child, but you're not supposed to say it on a podcast where people can listen back to it. Like That's the thing. You say it behind closed doors where you can't be recorded. Each of the startups I've worked with, I'm going to quantify this, each of the young people I've worked with have been special in different ways. Tonight at the Social Enterprise 10th anniversary, don't, I, you know, you knew I was going to get around this. Tonight I'm working <laughs> yep. with um, Chloe, who was our 2021 grand final winner, and Michaela, who was our 2020 runner-up. These two young women who are in grade 12 and grade 11. Um, Chloe had this, she was 11 and started making wheat bags and now she's trying to work with her local council to get a local maker's market done once a year as a twilight market where all of the stalls are, are young founders selling their wares. So that's what she's working on at the moment. And Michaela runs the I Am Project um, and she sells these like cool keychains with affirmations on them, really great as like corporate gifts or gifts for staff or students just as a nice little plug for her, the I Am Project. And she's a big believer in just that positive self-talk, like, you know, what we say in our head about ourselves really damages who we are and, and how we perceive our opportunities. And so she's really big in the mental health and wellness space and is actually a school captain of her school this year. And, and I'd like to hope that maybe the opportunity to move through our program also helps support her growth as a leader in that journey as well. Bum, bum, bum. You broke the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sad about it. 
<laughs> I like seeing people squirm sometimes, so that was good. Uh, the most interesting PD you've ever done? Oh, so um, a number of years ago, I was invited to go and see uh, Larry Moss, who is a acting coach. He's a director and an acting coach, and he came to Australia and he does these open sessions where he coaches actors live and you can come in as an auditor, which is basically just observing him coaching these actors. And it is some of the most amazing work I've ever seen in my life, the way that he's able to unlock these actors and some of the blockers or the barriers that exist for them in their work, which all stem to things that have happened to them or around them that they're holding on to that are stopping them from showing up in the way that they want to show up. I never thought watching an acting coach and an expert like that would teach me as much about people and leadership as it did. But every time he's come to Australia, I've locked in tickets. And Jan Owen was the one who told me about the Larry Moss workshops. And then I was like, well, you know, if Jan Owen says they're good, then I should probably give it a crack. And it was just one of the most interesting experiences. And I found myself writing pages and pages of notes um, whilst I was watching. One to add to our list for sure. Um, if you could change one rule or one thing in education, what would it be? It's like senior schooling, the way we do senior schooling. It's like ATAR, it's all of it. Yeah. One book. Do you want me to expand on that? Well, it's only supposed to be one word. <laughs> yeah, one word or idea. You, you choose. You're the one that's breaking the yeah, rules here. Yeah. Great. No, I'll just leave it at that. I think we've talked about enough of that today to kind of quantify why that would be the case. <laughs> Good. One book worth reading. There's two books I recommend educators read. I love Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. I think it's just this, yeah, so I definitely highly recommend that. Um, I also recommend Susan Cain's book, Quiet, The Power of the Introvert. That, for me, as quite an extroverted presenter, really helped me reframe some of the ways that I teach to, to consider the perspectives of more introverted learners and leaders. And I... And I think that you could quite uh, honestly say that those two recommendations are from a very well-read person having read your uh, out of office around Christmas time a couple of times in the last few years. Yeah, I love a good book. I'm reading Jim Collins at the moment, if you want to nerd out. It's called Beyond Entrepreneurship or BE 2.0. Like it's a book that I've actually finished reading and then started rereading as soon as I put it down and I've never done that before in my life. So. There's a third, breaking the rules. <laughs> and one person we should interview on the podcast. I struggled with this one as well. Um, we made, I made mention before about some schools are doing some interesting work around the four-day work week and how that can create space for students but also create some space for educators. And one leader that's doing that is Chrissy Coogan, who's principal of Cooperoo Secondary College in Brisbane. And so I, I just think that's a really interesting story. It's a school with quite a, a complex uh, community that she's really brought together and is doing some really innovative work. Excellent. We'll have to connect with her. I'm going to give you, I think, four out of six. Well done. Not too bad. We've had worse. So well played. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> well, that brings an end to our show for today. Um, man, that has gone quickly, uh, that last hour, that's for yep. sure. So I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Nicole. Matt, hit us with your closing comments. I know you've got them. I've got three pages of notes here um, and I can't read any of it because I was writing things down so quickly. But um, if I was to kind of consolidate, you know, the conversation today, there's this real calling to, to consider purpose. 
um, you know, right across um, the education sector. So purpose for our students, you know, if we, you know, if we really believe in that, uh, that idea of sort of independent energetic spirit and that readiness to act, well, we need to change what we do. Um, and if teachers, you know, we want teachers to find their purpose as well, well, we've got to give them explicit permission to experiment um, and we need to be provocative around pedagogy for purpose. What does it look like? What are we, what are we doing for learners um, and that notion of, of what we want uh, for them once they leave school? And I also love that challenge around coaching. You don't have to be broken, um, you know, um, and you don't need coaching, um, but do you want to be better? And I think that's just such a, a, a call to action um, for, for leaders um, and the power of coaching and what it can do for them. So um, I'm just going to go with one word, purpose, um, this morning. Luke, what do you got? Uh, I had a couple of – well, I, I definitely agree on the coaching part and I know that was only a small part of the conversation, but I do think that it's underestimated, you know, particularly in school leadership positions, the number of people that do have coaches and and the value that a, that a good coach can bring. And I know I've kind of been on my own journey a little bit with that, so it's nice to hear someone else that's gone on that journey and how useful and successful that relationship has been for someone and I think other educators should – and principals and leaders should think closely about having a coach that they that they are in having a relationship with and turning to to keep them accountable. Um, I also had that notion of we hear all the time in schools that we're so time poor, um, and I don't, you know, like listening to you today, today, Nicole, around that audits on time. I really think that's something that could be interesting and useful for schools to kind of have a think about how you know, teachers across the board are auditing their time if they're actually doing that at all and really getting some some better data on why is it that we don't have enough time to be able to create. You know, I, I'm sure that if we increased dots from whatever it is in your school from 5 to 10 or 10 to 20, we'd still fill it with things that maybe are not allowing us to do enough of the creative the creative work that we would like to be doing. And so how do we as a school do a bit better job of auditing our time, but then coaching and challenging our staff to use their time more appropriately or to, you know, box their time. And you talked about your favorite company in the world, Sinsana. I haven't, I don't know if I've got that right, but um, Sinsana. Yeah. Yes. And and how can, <laughs> you know, schools or teachers start thinking more closely about using a product such as that. Um, around their teaching to, you know, interrogate their time and to plan for using their time in a more, I guess, in a way that allows them to get after the things that they want to get after. Um, you know, and, I, and the third part I'd come back to is that notion of what do we want for them when they leave? Um, you know, it comes back, you know, to the purpose, but what do we want for students? And I always think it's interesting that we tend to, go to those answers that you described, which is, you know, that we want them to have determination. We want them to see opportunity. We want them to be, you know, have perseverance. Um, we want them, you know, to, to be good young humans. And the regurgitation of information for an exam doesn't often have necessarily direct correlation to that. Um and so I think that's an interesting takeaway and an interesting challenge for educators to continue to think about. So that's mine. Um, Nicole, look, thank you for giving up your time to be on the podcast. 
you know, you've had your last uh, little words of wisdom there. Is there anything else you want to share? And for the audience out there who also want to connect with you, where's the best place to find you and be able to follow you on the internet? Um, I mean, all of our website, futureanything.com, definitely LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. So feel free to connect on LinkedIn. I'm sporadically on Twitter. So wouldn't <laughs> recommend that. Every now and again, I'll jump on there. Um, the only thing that I would just add to close off that audit conversation just really quickly is that the fear, the risk in doing that kind of time check is that it becomes this big brother is watching, accounting for every minute, or it becomes this space where teachers feel like they need to justify the work that they're doing. And so I just want to provide the caveat that the intention of checking where we're spending our time is is not for those things at all. Like there needs to be a culture of trust to do that kind of work, I think, in a school. And the other thing that I would say is there has to be a commitment from the leadership team that when that audit is revealed, that they're actually genuinely looking to outsource parts of those. Like, so what can we outsource that our teachers are doing so that they don't have to do all the things that they're doing? If there's not a commitment to outsource or take things off the plate at the end of that discovery, then you shouldn't start on that journey because your team are just going to become frustrated and disenfranchised with the intention of that work. So I think with anything like that, it's got to start with a culture of trust, but there has to be a, a genuine intention to do something about that data when you get it. I couldn't agree more on the uh, the culture of trust and, you know, the, the bedrock of trust in any school community is, you know, probably the most important thing between leadership, staff and students, I would say. On that note, uh, for the audience out there, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and don't forget to share uh, the love and tell a few of your colleagues that you've listened to this great person uh, on the Ed Leaders podcast called Nicole Dyson and you should check her out with their live learning and you should also be listening to Ed Leaders every week. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you're not already signed up for the Ed Leaders newsletter, you're missing out. It's according to Matthew Irving, it's inspirational, it's insightful and it's some other I word that I can't remember. Check out edleaders.com.au for more details. Uh, Thanks again to the sponsors of today's show and we are eternally grateful to them for uh, allowing us to make this content free for you. Um, So we would be thankful if you went and spent a few minutes of your day checking them out as they support us. You can connect with Ed Leaders and both of us on LinkedIn where we'll keep you up to date with the latest. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well. 